this morning said they're heading back down uh, from Queensland starting yesterday. So they're heading back towards the, the warmth. I think it's been raining a lot down there. So they know all about God being king over the flood. There's plenty been happening in Queensland. But he sent me a message uh, earlier in the week also. And uh, he said, oh, I wish I was there. And I said back to him, I wish you were too. Then I wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning for the worship that you've received. We pray, Lord, that it's been acceptable to you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. My little doodaddy for um, changing the PowerPoint has broken this morning. So we're going to do like a, on the tapes, everyone ever had one of those read-along books when you were kids? Now it'll go ding, and you knew it was time to turn the page. And when you hear ding, Brad, that's the time. Go for it, mate. Ding. <laughs> One before that. Uh, if you were over 40, you wouldn't laugh at that because we got sick to death of that ad. <laughs> 1983 that came out, so you'd have, probably have to be over 40 to remember it. And uh, that was what God impressed on me this, this week to uh, speak on, do the right thing. Thanks, Brad. We found uh, we went up to uh, Cairns over the holidays for a week, and they're roughly 30 years behind us there. But they've got do the right thing still on their beach. <laughs> I could not believe it. I'm walking on the beach, and there it was. So, what is doing the right thing? Let's have a look at a couple of uh, Bible verses to uh, give us some framework to work with. First one's from Hosea 14.9. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So doing the right thing starts with understanding the ways of the Lord. If we don't understand the ways of the Lord, we might be doing right in our own eyes, but not necessarily in his. And this verse seems to break us down into two types of people. Now, I've always thought there were two types of people, those who buried for Collingwood and the rest of us. But <laughs> that was for you, Andrew. But um, the righteous and the rebellious. doesn't seem to give any in-betweens there, does it? It's either you are righteous or you are rebellious by default. Um, 
presumably those who are righteous are those who want to understand God or at least try to understand or fathom his depths. And those who are rebellious are those who presumably don't want to. Now, I think that can probably be by default as well. There's a lot of people who would call themselves, you know, I'm doing the right thing, I'm righteous. But um, I had this conversation with a guy from our cricket club once and uh, he says, you're telling me by default because I'm not trying to understand God or acknowledging that he exists, that by default I'm being wrong or whatever. And I, I, I struggled with that because it is, it is a grey area, but I said, um, yeah, I, I believe so. Unless we are trying to discover who God is and what he wants for our lives, it's, very, it, it, well, it's impossible. God's word says it's impossible to please him. So being here today hopefully puts us in the former category of those who are wanting to understand God or at least believing that he exists. Now, I'm aware that there may be people here who are in the other category as well, and that's fantastic because that's what the church exists for, for those people to come and find, find out about the Lord. Thanks, Brad. Ding. <laughs> Second verse, Philippians uh, 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever. If anyone is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And that's about where most people finish. They think about them. Don't necessarily do anything towards actually doing such things, but we think about them a lot because this verse says we have to. And unfortunately, intellectual assent isn't all that God's after. He's after more than just intellectually assenting to his existence or to the fact that he wants us to do things uh, that are right. Um, 10th Avenue North have a song which I discovered recently and uh, the words of it say, it would be easier if you were just a thought in my head, merely something I once read, a belief needing my defence. Uh, but he's not. God's so much more than that. He's so much more than a thought or an idea or a philosophy. He's a person and he's a person who we want to get to know. My dad had a saying, which I probably can't repeat the whole thing here in church, but um, he used to say, you know, when I agreed to do something or when I knew something needed to be done, um, he was very proactive. He said, well, you just got to get in and do it. He said, you know, it's no good just thinking that something needs to be done and complaining about it. Um, and he always finished with uh, this saying, actions speak louder than words. Thoughts are fine, words are fine, actions speak louder than them all. Think. Ah, there we go. Uh, Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is verses telling us that anything that we do that is right or good is ultimately God working through us not necessarily of ourselves. Obviously, our mind is engaged and we have to have assent to do the right thing, but it's God working through us to fulfill his purposes. So it kind of follows that then it would be impossible to do the right thing without God's help. A couple nodding, a couple going, mm, not sure. At least in God's eyes. Plenty of us are doing the right thing in our own eyes. Most people are pretty good at defending that. Hebrews 11.6, which is the next verse, appears to support the notion of not being able to please God without a relationship. 
Do we have that one bread or not? That's all right. That's all right. Just go back to the last one. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what do we know from these verses? One, God's way is the right way. Number two, actions speak louder than words or thoughts. We need God's help to do the right thing. And doing the right thing requires faith. So what is doing the right thing? I've summarized it into four points because every sermon has four points. Well, maybe three, but it's got to have points, doesn't it? So if you're taking notes, write this down. Doing the right thing isn't not doing the wrong thing. Two are very, very different. Plenty of people are not doing the wrong thing. You know, ask anybody, challenge them, I know, why are you doing that? Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, we may not be doing something right, but people are very good at defensive thought and uh, doing the right thing requires a different kind of thought than that. Uh, my grandfather springs to mind. He was a, a wonderful man and gave his life to loving his wife and serving others. And uh, he died a couple of years ago. It's about three years ago, I think now. And I wrote a eulogy for his uh, funeral service to talk about his life. And I borrowed a little bit from the internet where I found, uh, I found this uh, um, idea. Um, but it's called The Dash. So I'm just going to read it for you. When we're born, we're given a number. When we die, we're given another number. This life goes by faster than we can imagine. Soon, in what will feel like a blink of an eye, it's gone. But what really matters is what happens between those numbers. Your dash. Life is not how much you own, what kind of clothes you wear, the job you have or the house you live in. What matters is how we live and love. Were you a good father, a good mother, a good son or daughter, a good grandparent, a good friend? There is time to change and rearrange your life. By making a conscious choice to live our lives with passion and purpose, we can leave our mark on the world, leaving it a better place than we found it. The tombstone itself cannot tell your story. In the dash is your legacy, mirrored in those who knew you. So much in a little line. It's not even a word. It's life represented in a symbol. What will you do with your dash? Let me tell you what my grandfather did with his. His dash was characterised by service to his wife, his family, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, his neighbours and his community. His dash tells of a man whose actions mirrored his words, of a man who valued justice and fair play, of a man with unshakable loyalty. I'm getting a bit emotional reading this. Of a man with rugged strength matched only by his tender love. His dash knew the love of a good woman, the challenge of parenthood, the satisfaction of a day's work done, the victory and loss of competition, and the joy of family. His dash has left a legacy of faithfulness, integrity, decency, love, and good old-fashioned hard work. His dash has left this world a better place than he found it. So when I visit his grave and look at the gravestone commemorating his life, the thing that I'll miss is not the numbers of 1915 or 2008 signifying his birth and his death, 
the thing I'll miss about my pa, the thing that will live on in my life, in my children, and eventually in their children, the thing I'll be forever proud of is his dash. It was a wonderful life of not doing the wrong thing. I say that because as good and as kind and as generous and as wonderful and as much as I love my grandfather, he never gave God a second thought. I remember talking to him once and he said, I believe all I have to do is do the right thing, do my best. And I never really had much time for that religion stuff. I wonder where he got the notion of doing the right thing from. Was it from society that he lived in, the culture that he lived in, this dog-eat-dog, do-your-own-thing, you're number one, look out for yourself kind of society? Is that where he got his notion of what was right? His, his ideas, I guess, were warped, as all of our ideas tend to be, by the society we live in, by the media that we're exposed to, the cultural influences and the moral code of this society. So he lived a life of not doing the wrong thing, and by default, he didn't do the right thing. He didn't investigate God. He didn't look into what God wanted for his life. Even though by society standards, we would say he lived a wonderful life. I wonder... I don't know, but I just wonder how his meeting with God was, how that went. So the two ideas are not the same. Doing the right thing is not not doing the wrong thing. They are diametrically opposed. One is here and one is here. Number two, ding, thank you. <laughs> doing the right thing involves risk. I remember Malcolm Fraser saying, Life wasn't meant to be easy. Life involves risk because we live in a fallen world. Now, it wasn't always so, but it is that way now. And I'm sure Malcolm Fraser wasn't the first to wish that it wasn't so. We'd all like to play it safe. We do it in a number of ways. When I first became a Christian, the first piece of advice my dad gave me was the one that would possibly make the Christian life as dull and as boring and as uninspiring as possible. And he said, make sure the church doesn't get all your money. <laughs> he'd been brought up on eight generations of farmers and they were very sure that you, ma you made sure you prepared for the afterlife now for them the afterlife was after the farm <laughs> it wasn't after this life and, but you had to make sure you had enough money left and the first thing that he thought of when he thought of church was don't let him get all your money I could paraphrase that. I would say what he was saying to me was, play it safe, son. Let someone else pay. Keep your assets to yourself. Look after number one. Good advice. Probably not. When I'd been involved in running Alpha for a number of years, about 10 years or so, I started to get a little bit weary. It was a bit... I felt like I was just like always constantly giving out and not necessarily being fed myself. And I, I thought I might have a bit of a rest from it. At the time, I wasn't thought about whether, you know, I wasn't sure about where the thought had come from. Um, so I had, I had a short break from Alpha, and I ran a course called uh, Wild at Heart. Has anybody here done Wild at Heart course? One, two, Tabitha. Yeah, you're putting your hand up, Tabitha. It's a men's course. Yep. <laughs> oh, you're putting it up for your husband. Okay, cool. I'm just wondering how you, how you disguise yourself to get in. That was just that thought out of my head. Okay. 
<laughs> I've heard of men dressing up as women again in a women's course, but not. I always want to know what goes on there. <laughs> uh, Wild at Heart is a course uh, run by John Eldridge, who's an American speaker. And uh, about three or four weeks into the course, he, he said something that really resonated with me. And it, it kind of, it talked about where I was at, I think, in this decision-making period of my life about what I would do with Alpha and whether I would go back to it or not. It was a bit of a light bulb moment. He talked about the tactics that Satan uses to get us to play it safe. And he said, you know, in your head, or in my head, I guess, this is what Satan says. He says, someone else can do it. You've had your turn. You've done enough. Ten years, that's plenty. You've done more than most people. Spend more time with your family. All things that are really good justifications, you know. Aren't you sick of me making your life tough? Stop tasting risks. And on I went. Good and plausible reasons. But what essentially he was saying, ding, is if you lay down your guns, I'll lay down mine. We'll stop shooting at each other. And it was a light bulb moment for me. Because essentially he, he's saying, if you stop taking risks, you'll be no trouble to me. I can leave you alone. And unfortunately, Satan can leave a lot of Christians alone. Too many Christians alone. Most of us will do the right thing as long as it doesn't involve any risk to us. We've all seen that ad on television where the guy drops the $20 notes. Now he's walking along. You're, yeah, everybody, anybody seen? Anybody at all seen that? Yeah, all right, okay. He drops the $20 notes on the sidewalk and they're, they're testing the honesty of Australians. And, and the, the summary of the whole ad is Australians are a pretty honest lot. But there's not a lot at stake there, is there? There's no, there's no risk to the person's health. There's no risk to their money. There's no risk to their future. There's no risk to their family or their children. There's no risk involved. It's easy to do the right thing when it's safe. But what happens when it's not? When we all tell ourselves when we put in that situation that we would stand up, that we would do the right thing. And I'm sure we've all got stories about times when we've been put in a stressful situation where there could have been harm to our bodies or to ourselves or to our family and we have done the right thing and we've had to make that decision quickly. But I'm here to tell you that it's not always so. We don't always do the right thing. A number of years ago, back in 2004, ding, thank you, uh, Lauren and I went on the Great Victorian bike ride. That, believe it or not, is Lauren, and this is us, <laughs> our tent. 9,000 people that were on the ride that year. They've since limited it because it was ridiculous, that number of people on the road and on bikes. But we went away for uh, eight days. We rode um, 560 kilometres, I think, in the eight days with a rest day in the middle. And some of them were pretty gruelling days. You see, I had a bike that had a... Um, a connector on the bus. So this is my bike, and then Lauren's bike kind of connected on the back here, and she pedaled when she felt like it and stopped, <laughs> stopped pedaling when she didn't feel like it. So there was a lot of people who would come past me and go, she's not pedaling, and I go, I know. 
I called her my turbo boost for the first two or three days, and after that, I think she had a good holiday. <laughs> I know this because when we got, we got to the end of one day, and uh, we stopped, uh, I think it was, it was 100, there's one day that's over 100 kilometers, and we got to the 80 kilometer mark, and everyone kind of had a rest break, and it was this little park there with a playground on it, and of course, I just, uh, just, just, yeah, that's me, <laughs> on the bottom. I did that, and Lauren said, can I come play? I said, sure. And that's when I knew she hadn't been pedaling much. <laughs> anyway, you see, we had a fantastic time. It was a really good bonding time for us as a, as a father and daughter. Um, but uh, the story is about one of the days we, we got to uh, Aries Inlet. It was at the end of one of the days. It was along the Great Ocean Road, as you can see. And uh, we arrived at Aries Inlet, and I said, let's go for a swim. I think we'd done about 80 kilometres that day. And by the time we got down to the beach, there was probably 1,000 of the 9,000 people were there having a swim. And Aries Inland is a surf beach. It's got some kind of a short beach. It's got rocks on one end and, and it kind of, uh, yeah, it, apparently it's got a reasonably dangerous rip, but we didn't know that at the time. And so uh, I was too exhausted to swim. I uh, just sat down on my beach and st on, the, on the beach on a, on a towel and started reading a book. Lauren went and played in the shallows and I was kind of reading the book, watching her, reading the book, watching her. And as I was doing this, I've been there for about 10 to 15 minutes, I heard a number, three or four guys discussing something. I thought, it just kind of pricked my ears. And they were saying things like, do you reckon he's okay? I wonder if he's all right. Do you think he's waving for help? Oh, no, I think he'll be okay. And I looked up, and these four guys are standing kind of just, just in front of me to the right, only three or four metres away. And uh, as I looked out, I could see what they were looking at. There was a guy kind of a little bit further out in, like, he was out probably 100 metres into the, into the guy, just a little bit far out for the amount of kilometres he'd ridden that day, and he couldn't get back. And he's waving like this, which is the universal sign for, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so these guys thought. Of course it's not. It's the universal sign for, help me. And um, these guys, they weren't doing anything. So I, I don't know what it, what it was. I never actually had any conscious thought about what I was going to do. But I closed my book making sure I kept the spot where I was, so I could pick it up again, <laughs> as you do. And uh, I walked down the beach, I, so I took my, took my shirt off, stripped down, I walked down the beach to Laura and I said to her, go and sit back on my towel, I'll be back in a minute, don't go in the water. So I made sure she walked back up the beach and I just got in and I swam. Now I'd just been having swimming lessons so I was feeling extremely confident because uh, Gloria Hardy, who's a lady in our, in our last church, had been giving the girls swimming lessons, and she taught me to swim with my head under the water, so I thought, oh, it was pretty cool. Um, but, of course, there's a fair bit of surf there that day, so uh, perhaps my you know, expectations weren't quite as uh, good as what my experience was, but I swam out nonetheless, straight towards this guy. Now, when I got out there, I realised he was sitting on a rock just under the surface, so it was probably, probably this much under the surface, and the waves were crashing over this rock, and about six or seven metres further on was big rocks where you don't want to go. And he was kind of stuck in between these two. So every time the waves would come, it would wash him off the rock into this space in between the two rocks. And then he'd kind of just scramble back up on the rock and get his breath back, and the next wave would knock him off again. So I got out there and I said to him, once with the breath that I had left, um, next time the wave... I, don't know why, I actually said to him, jump in the water. He goes, no, I can't do that. I said, well, okay and the next wave came and washed him off. I said, don't get back in, and I swam, I was back on the rock, I swam in, and I grabbed him, and I did the universal, which I'd never practiced before, but it was really cool, 
Because <laughs> I've heard it say that people who are, who are drowning will struggle and maybe take you down with them. He was so exhausted, he just went, he just went all the way back. Oh, I love you, mate. You know, so kind of, the kind of stuff they say in the pub, you know, oh, I love you, mate. You're my hero. He had a few expletives in between that I can't say. But, um, but I had him all the way back. Now, I thought and it was a lot further back than I thought it was going out. <laughs> Swimming side stroke and trying to drag him. But anyway, finally, I got back to where I could get the sand underneath my feet. And I found that I couldn't actually drag him in any further. I was literally totally exhausted. And thankfully, these four guys who'd been discussing it the whole time came down the beach. <laughs> oh, you're right, mate. Yeah, and they grabbed, two of them grabbed him and one said, you're right, mate. And I go, yeah, I'm fine. And they took him back up the beach and they had a nurse already there um, who'd come over and uh, was helping him. And he, he was, his legs were kind of not, not serious cuts, but, you know, lacerations all the way down from the rocks that were under the surface. And they were kind of patching him up. I remember I walked back over. I sat down on my towel and I said, Lauren, you can go and play now. And I picked up my book and I got to the right spot. And about half the way down the page, I started shaking. Like, what was that? What did I just do? Now, I never heard from the guy again. I never heard from any of the, the guys who were involved in that. But it occurred to me that maybe doing the right thing is conditioning. We're conditioned to do it because of what we're taught. And I don't think I even thought about whether I would make it out or whether I would make it back or whether the rocks would take us both or whether he would drag me down. I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just swam because I was conditioned to do the right thing. And I think coming back to um, the time that I'd spent in church and the, the, the stuff that I've learned through the Bible and through the preachers that I've listened to is that I was conditioned to do the right thing. It wasn't something that I had to think about. It just happened naturally. Ding. <laughs> Number three, doing the right thing is the right thing to do. It was a few years ago, sorry, lots of stories here. We were involved in a car crash just in officer here, um, so it's topical. Just, just as you were coming in, officer, I'd just been out and dropped off uh, uh, Lauren, she tells me this morning. She had a very good memory. Well, I dropped off Lauren at Mill Valley Ranch to have a week-long camp, and I had the other two girls in the car with me. We're an old station wagon and we're driving back through Officer and I was just driving along there at about 100 kilometres an hour just before you come into the slow area and bang, something hit the back of our car. And all of a sudden, instead of being straight, the back of our car is like this. And we just fishtailed on down the road. I'm thinking, what the heck was that? And I was, my whole time was spent just trying to get the car back under control. And I did probably, you know, 200 yards further down the road and I pulled off to the side. And as I looked in the rear vision mirror, I could see these people pulling up on the side of the road in their cars and running across to the middle of the road. So I locked the kids in the car and uh, I ran. I said, don't move. It wasn't, that, it wasn't a hot day, so police weren't going to get me for locking the kids in the car. And I ran back down in my thongs and shorts or whatever I was in at the time. And uh, they were all standing in the median strip looking at this car on its roof in the middle of the road, wheels still spinning, and a lady screaming inside. And it's quite hard to visualise, I know. So I just did a little video, which we had a lot of fun doing, to kind of dramatise it for you. <laughs> so we're the front car. Car coming past on the outside, spins out, hit the back of us. And then he kind of spun around and did two turns and ended up 
about 30 centimetres short of a power pole. <laughs> They're the four people. This is me. Run! Watch this bit. Oh! <laughs> Look at that! Oh! <laughs> we had a lot of fun making that, didn't we, Lauren? 150 photos for a 45-second video. But um, again, what struck me was these people standing on the side of the road were doing nothing. They're doing nothing. The car was upside down, spinning on its wheel. You know, I've seen the Hollywood stuff. I mean, the car didn't, it didn't blow up, okay? I, that, was, that was Hollywood license, okay? And there was no smoke and crackle and stuff. It was just on its roof. But the lady inside was screaming. And people were standing there, and they weren't even discussing it. And I just got up to the first guy and I said, is there someone in there? Which is a rhetorical question because she was screaming. And he goes, yeah, I think so, which was a stupid answer because he knew there was. <laughs> and so... I basically just ran down this a bit of a slope down there and they crushed quite a few of the trees and stuff. And I just climbed over the top of the thing, which was pretty hot, and got her to wind down her window from the inside and pulled her out through the passenger side door. And then, of course, we had to get the husband out who was actually driving. He was on the other side. And he, but one of the guys who was standing up the top, he followed me down. Um, and, you know, just kind of needed someone to jolt him into action, I think. And, um, but it was really... Um, it's really weird. The two stories are very similar, the swimming story and this one, because there's a whole lot of people standing there wondering what to do. And they were standing around and discussing what to do, which is what our society does a lot. I mean, led by our politicians, they discuss a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it'd be really tempting for us to stand with the other spectators and think about, you know, what we should do and discuss and the pros and cons and all those sort of things for it. But, but that's not really what we're called to do. What Jesus, I have to look at what Jesus does. And the bumper sticker comes to mind, Jesus saves. That's what Jesus does. And that's what he's expecting us to do also. As followers of Jesus, we should be doing exactly the same thing. We should be saving people. We should be taking that instantaneous decision to do the right thing, not to stand around and discuss. I heard about a young police officer. I'm borrowing this from the Alpha course, Nicky Gumbel, one of Nicky Gumbel's stories, but he was taking his final exam at Hendon Police College in North London. The first three questions in the exam were relatively easy, and then he got to question four. Question four went like this. You're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath, and there's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognise the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector, who's currently away in the United States. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, but you realise that he's a man wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, another man runs out of a house nearby, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into the adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. <laughs> the police officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> that is the temptation, isn't it? To mingle 
with the crowd, to not do the right thing, but to go step back, someone else will do it. But what if someone else doesn't? I mean, the church is a bit like that, isn't it? I've heard it said that the church is a bit like... Um, ding, Brad, sorry. <laughs> the church is a bit like a, uh, a football match where there's 36 people running around on the field desperately in need of arrest, watched by 36,000 people desperately in need of exercise. These guys are getting plenty of exercise. Well, look at it. And they've got their teeth too, Andrew, I see. Number four. Doing the right thing won't get you into heaven. Ephesians 2.8 8, 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good work which God prepared in advance for us to do. We do the right thing as a response to what God has done for us. Because he did the right thing for us. We don't do it to earn brownie points or a ticket to heaven. If we believe in Jesus, we already have that. Doing the right thing is a response to what he has done. And we're supposed to make a difference out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Thank you, Ding. The very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. This is Paul speaking. Along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master, firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. You've got to love the message. It's an awesome version, eh? Dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness. You see, God's doing, sorry, doing the uh, wrong thing, not doing the wrong thing, is not necessarily doing the right thing. Not doing the wrong thing is another form of playing it safe. And that's where most of us live today. Somewhere between knowing the truth and the right thing to do and doing it. There's a long way between those two points and the only way to get from one point to the other is to step out. One step is all it takes. The funny thing about walking is after you take the first step, you actually have the momentum to take the second and the third and the fourth and so on until it becomes a pattern of life, a way of living. And the church should be a place where that happens. It should be first and foremost the place, the place where that happens. One vicar received a letter like this. He said, Dear Pastor, there are 566 people in our church. A hundred are frail and elderly. That leaves 466 to do all the work. But 80 are young people at school or at university, and that leaves 386 to do all the work. But 150 of these are tired business people. That leaves 236 to do all the work. 
150 of these are busy with children, which leaves 86 to do all the work. But 15 live too far away to come here regularly, and that leaves 71 to do all the work. And 69 say they've already done their bit for the church, and that leaves you and me, and I'm exhausted, so good luck to you. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's the way the church kind of feels sometimes, that the pastor is the one to do all the work. Now, I know Mark has been very strong on saying that everybody is going to be involved here, and I think that's probably the reason why a lot of us are here because we want to be involved. We want to get in and do things, and we don't want to leave it to just an exclusive few who stand up the front here and we go, yeah, 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 on a Sunday, and we go home and let them do the rest of the work. I think that's why we're here. Because, I guess in summary, the world's not going to be changed by our intellectual assent to the truths of God. It won't be changed for the better by our attendance at church, as good as that is. It'll be changed for the better by us doing the right thing by us believing in God, by imitating Jesus, and by our actions showing God's love to a fallen world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we know what the right thing to do is. Because you have left us your word, Lord. You left us the example of Jesus, who throughout his whole life taught us how to do the right thing. Father, I pray that we would take his example, that we would learn from it, that we would read about it, that we would examine it, Lord, and that we would follow in his footsteps. Father, I pray that the next time each one of us here sees a situation where we know what the right thing to do is, that we will take a step forward and we will do it. And by that, we would be your hands and your feet in this world, which is what you intended us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.